This is an ABC podcast. Okay, everyone good? Today the Albanese government is releasing this independent review of the Reserve Bank of Australia. I want to thank the review panel. Uh, Gordon de Brower, Professor Renee Fry-McKibben and Professor Carolyn Wilkins uh, for this absolutely first-class piece of work. Uh, And what their thinking and all of their work over some months means uh, is a roadmap, uh, a plan for the future of the Reserve Bank of Australia, which I am really proud to be releasing today. That's Treasurer Jim Chalmers. This is The Money with me, Richard Aidey, and the review of the Reserve Bank is where we begin. It's a critical and comprehensive document. There are 51 recommendations for change, so you won't be hearing all of them now. We'll focus on the biggies. Isaac Cross is a Monash University economist who used to be at the Reserve Bank. He's been one of the RBA's most thoughtful critics over the last few years, and he joins me now. Isaac, 51 recommendations. Which is the most critical change? Well, I think the biggest change that the review has proposed today is taking away the power to set interest rates from the RBA's board and giving it to a new dedicated monetary policy committee uh, that will be staffed by a group of experts in monetary policy and macroeconomics. And there'll be a mix of insiders and outsiders, but they'll be the ones that are setting the cash rate once these reforms go through. So how important is it that it's a panel with genuine monetary policy expertise? Well, I think it's quite important. Monetary policy is an incredibly complex area of public policy. You've got to be able to forecast the economy. You've got to know how interest rates affect the economy. And that means that you, you, know, you need to have a bit of experience in it. It's not unlike constitutional law. We don't get any old person up on the High Court of Australia. We choose our finest legal minds. Same is true of vaccine policy. When it comes to choosing what vaccines to distribute and when, we get our smartest health practitioners. Uh, And so I think the same should be true of monetary policy. We should be getting the top economists in the land combined with experts on wages and financial markets and getting them together as a group to decide how we should be setting interest rates. Yeah, it's obviously a critically important thing. Well, as you may know, actually, Philip Lowe has already defended the approach that the bank has been taking. One observation I'd make uh, through the review process, which I said was kind of excellent, is the, the review panel did not sit in the boardroom. And the description of how the board process works and the challenge in in the boardroom that the panel has doesn't particularly resonate with me. In the boardroom right next door, what I see are nine people who are deeply engaged in the questions, who bring a great deal of expertise to the, the issues we're dealing with. They're probing, they challenge me, and sometimes Um, I speak last in the meeting. So the idea that the board members sit there meekly and accept the recommendation that I put to them is is very far from the reality that that I've lived as the governor. So so that is, I would say, somewhat uh, defensive because, of course, the report has been critical of some of the decision-making that the RBA board has made on interest rates. Yeah, I think it was quite a a defensive response from Phil Lowe. And, And he's right. The review didn't sit in the board meetings themselves, but they did read the minutes of the board meetings. They read the board papers that start off each meeting, and then they went and interviewed several of uh, form the people who have served on the board uh, in previous times. So 
I think you'd have to say that if the review, having done all that work, didn't have an accurate review of what goes on uh, during the RBA's board meeting, then it's perhaps because the RBA board itself is not being very transparent about what goes on. They're not you know, publishing minutes that really reflect the discussion that occurs. And so I think this is perhaps a, a line of defensiveness that isn't really warranted. The review is is quite clear in its criticisms of some of the decisions the RBA has made. So uh, to take one that sort of everybody is familiar with now, the forecast that interest rates would remain at 0% for the next three years until 2024. Now, everybody knows, uh, at least now, that that was a mistake. And when the review delves into that mistake, and they talk about it in quite some detail, they find that the board made the decision to issue that guidance uh, on the basis of zero written advice from the RBA staff. And in fact, when the RBA staff had discussed this issue, this idea of uh, giving guidance to how low interest rates would remain, they explicitly warned about the dangers of this approach. They said it's really risky. If the economy changes, you might be stuck and forced to backtrack. So I kind of side with the review on this one. I think the board hasn't been very transparent. The review has been very careful and diligent, pointing out some of the mistakes it's been making. And so this idea that, well, if you're only in the room, you would see how great we are, I think it isn't a very credible line to take. All right. So what about an, another, for me, one of the key recommendations is reducing the number of decision-making meetings. As you know, at the moment, we have 11. The board, the board takes January off. Why is going down to eight important? And, and what effect will it have, Zach? Look, I think this is important for some pretty prosaic, boring reasons of just being able to manage the workload on the RBA staff. The RBA put a lot of work into the board meetings. They collect the papers, they write recommendations. And if you're doing that eight times a year uh, instead of 11, uh, it reduces the workload on that monthly grind and gives you a chance to both put a bit more time into research uh, and also to put more time into how you prepare those board documents. So Phil Lowe has often said in the past that he thinks that uh, if he gave a press conference at the end of every board meeting, he'd be talking 11 times a year and that would be quite a lot of press conferences. I'm not sure our politicians in Canberra would agree with that, but maybe if he finds 11 press conferences a year too many, we can we can sort of compromise and settle at eight. So I think by reducing that number down, we can potentially get a bit more quality, perhaps at the expense of quantity, in terms of the number of times the RBA meets each year. The other thing, of course, that it will necessarily do is it will just give a bit more time for any effect that the last the last decision was to kind of come through in the numbers a bit. That's right. That's right. The the RBA is often fond of saying, well, look, if we pause today or don't make a move today, we can wait and get another fresh round of numbers, another unemployment number, another inflation print. Uh, and perhaps having sort of eight weeks in between meetings instead of four might enable them to be more confident when they make their uh, decisions as opposed to sort of constantly thinking that they could wait just one more meeting. Mm. Do- doesn't going to wait conflict a bit with recommendations about the RBA communicating better and being more transparent? Well, I think this goes down to that quantity versus quality issue at the moment. Today, when the RBA meets, they put out a statement, but it's sort of a one-page statement, which is almost identical to the statement they put out the last month, and they don't do a press conference. And so you'd have to say that the amount of transparency in the monthly meetings today is is only at a, a fairly low level. By contrast, if they move to an eight-meeting-a-year cycle, they 
increase the transparency by holding press conferences, by giving a bit more detail on why they made the decision that they made, then hopefully you would get uh, more transparency, uh, perhaps at the cost of fewer meetings a year. So there is a trade-off there, Mm. um, but I think this is a trade-off worth making. Certainly there's more information after, say, a meeting of the the Federal Reserve in America. Um, Now, you've, you've worked at the RBA, Zach. Does the, does the reference in the review to the culture being hierarchical and risk-averse ring true? Uh, look, I have to confess, when I was at the RBA, I was uh, fairly forthright with my opinions about uh, uh, the macro economy and, and what policy should do. Uh, so while I personally didn't feel uh, too subdued by the culture, I know a lot of people did, uh, and, and particularly once you got above the sort of uh, graduate economist level and into sort of management ranks, people felt uh, a pressure to, to sort of follow the party line or at least follow the leadership's line. So, uh, look, I, I think that culture does exist, and I, I think it is problematic uh, because if you're not getting pushback from the board and you're not getting pushback from the staff, uh, then there's not many people to call you out if you're potentially making a mistake. And so having both a board that's able to question your decisions as well as a staff that's able to question uh, those decisions from below, I I think is an important part of a a healthy monetary policy uh, maker. Well, that's addressed to some extent by another recommendation, which is to appoint a chief operating officer whose job it will be, at least part of it, to break down silos within the bank and kind of open up the culture. Yeah, that's a, one of the more interesting suggestions. Look, I, I'm not a uh, an office manager or uh, someone who's worked in human resources, so I, I'd be interested to see how it goes in a, a place that's, I guess, fairly conservative like the Reserve Bank. But uh, I, I think it's a, an interesting idea and certainly one that should be tried. Uh, you, you won't know if it works until you give it a go. And having someone whose sole job it is is to try and mix things up and uh, help foster more active dis- discussion uh, is probably something worth trying. Another thing that's come up is uh, a recommendation that uh, full employment be part of what, what is shaping the decision-making. And we're going to talk more about that later in the program, actually. But how important is that recommendation, Zach? Look, full employment has always been a part of the RBA's mandate. It's, it's written right there in the Act. They, when setting monetary policy, always take into consideration unemployment. So I think it's it's a little bit of a misnomer to think that they only care about inflation even today and, and even in years gone by. Um, that being said, it's an important thing to emphasise. And so the fact that it's getting its time in the spotlight today and that we're talking about full employment, what that number could be, uh, I think is important. And one area where I think we could maybe improve our discussion of it is having more detail about what we think defines full employment. It's a subject of great debate amongst economists, exactly what full employment looks like. Um, And that's a debate that the RBA should be contributing to on a a more regular basis. As I said, we will get to that after we've finished hearing from you, Zach. Now, the governor's made it clear uh, that he'd like to stay on, uh, given the criticisms in the report and, and the scale of the changes recommended. Do you think that that's a likely outcome? Look, I have to confess, when I first read the report, I thought that there was so much here that it would be almost unfair to drop a, a brand new governor in to the midst of this big uh, ongoing change to the organisation. 
Having said that, I think you can only really get these reforms done if you have a governor who's committed to implementing all 51 of them, as the, indeed the government is and the opposition. So I think whether Phil Lowe uh, should be reappointed or perhaps is reappointed will depend on whether he is uh, sufficiently committed to implementing the review in all its form. I, I think that defensive line he took at the press conference today I didn't think was a perhaps a great sign of that, um, but uh, I guess we'll have to wait and see whether they're willing to uh, take up these suggestions and, and really push them forward. Isaac, well, one economist with two opinions there. I don't think that's ever <laughs> don't think that's ever happened before. Overall, how profound a change will this be for the bank? This transformation. Look. I don't want to over-egg it, but I think this will be a really profound change for the Reserve Bank of Australia and, by consequence, the Australian economy. Uh, having a, a central bank that's doing its best to implement monetary policy in you know, an efficient and optimal manner is key to having a healthy economy. It helps all Australians uh, everywhere from Perth to Sydney uh, and everywhere in between. So I, I think this is a really big deal. And if it's you know, successfully implemented, it should be seen as on par with the, the floating of the dollar and uh, the other reforms under the Hawke-Keating government. I think this is, will be one of the real legacies of the current government uh, and something that uh, we should all be hoping succeeds. Well, Will ordinary people, people like me, notice the result in terms of inflation, interest rates, employment? Look, not immediately. I think with inflation as high as it is, interest rates are going to stay high to, to generate a more sustainable, uh, narrow path back to uh, a more normal economy. But I think in the long run, yes, we'll see a reserve bank that makes fewer mistakes. That means fewer recessions when unemployment is high. It means fewer times when the economy is overstimulated and inflation is soaring as we see it today. And I think if we can avoid those two opposite fates, an overheated economy or, or a recession, that's something that all Australians will benefit from. And that's a uh, hopefully a, uh, a goal that this uh, review can help produce. Isaac, thank you very much for joining us today on The Money. No worries. Thanks for having me, Richard. Isaac Gross is at Monash University. One of those recommendations you've just been hearing about involves full employment. It's to become as important a factor in determining the RBA's cash rate as inflation. But what is full employment? As you heard Isaac Gross just say, economists argue themselves about that. Jeff Borland's probably the country's leading labour economist. Jeff, with unemployment at 3.5%, aren't we pretty much there anyway? Well, it, it depends, uh, I guess, on how we define full employment. I think all the approaches we have would say that you know, if we're not there already, we're, we're getting close. There's a few different approaches. If you go back to the sort of beverage approach, full employment is when we had the same number of people unemployed as we have uh, vacancies, that evolved to the idea that full employment was when economic activity was its potential so that there was no uh, cyclical unemployment. More recently, we've had this idea that full employment is the, is the lowest rate of unemployment we can get to without causing accelerating uh, wage inflation, what's often referred to as the, the, the Nauru. The, yes. Yeah, exactly. The non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment. And yeah, if you actually apply those different approaches at the moment, you get slightly different answers. I think I think it's the case that the RBA and Treasury are defining 
The Nauru is about four and a quarter to four and a half percent. So if you take that, then we've gone past it. On the other hand, if you take the old beverage approach, the the February uh, labour force numbers said that we had about 500,000 people unemployed and about 400, uh, I think, 38,000 mm. um, vacancies. So on that definition, we're, we're not quite there, but we're getting close. I think there's a tendency to think that full employment means that everyone who wants a job has a job. I guess that might be an ideal. We'd like to think that that could happen, but we're not ever likely to have um, zero unemployment. First of all, we know that there's always people coming into and going out of the labour force. And for the people uh, moving into the the labour force, they're going to take a while to search for a job, apply for jobs. Firms are going to take a while to go through their hiring processes. And so, yeah, that's going to cause some sort of unemployment, which we refer to as frictional unemployment. The other aspect of change is that there's always going to be changes in the skills which are being demanded, changes in the location of jobs. And so even if you have the same number of people unemployed as as vacancies, so we're in a position where we think, wow, everyone could have a job, there's going to be some mismatch usually. It's obviously uh, positive that more people are employed, better for them, better for the economy. But you say it's also um, more equitable or fairer. Why is that? Well, this is really about the fact that there's some groups who account for a disproportionately um, large share of unemployment. That is, their their share in unemployment is bigger than their share in the labour force or or the population. And so they uh, benefit disproportionately as we get to a lower rate of unemployment. Of course, the flip side is they are worst affected when unemployment increases. I mean, a good example is young people. So uh, young people... Uh, make up a, a larger share of unemployment than they make up of the population or labour force. That's because they're making the transition from education to, to work, moving into sort of the, the labour force, so taking time to find a job. They also tend to sort of move between jobs more. So if you look at the sort of latest numbers, young people made up 37% of the pool of unemployed in Australia, but they're only about 15% of the population. So yeah, what that means is when the labour market improves, young people benefit more from increased number of jobs, decrease in unemployment than, than older age groups do. You can really see that borne out in the in the numbers. If you compare back to before COVID, when our unemployment rate was um, around 5%, now we've got down to 3.5%. Young people aged 15 to 24, the proportion of them in employment's actually increased about six percentage points, whereas for people aged 25 to 64, it's about two percentage points. For people who are 65 and above, it's it's one percentage point. So we can really see you know, young people who you know, have this larger share of unemployment benefiting yeah. from the lower rate of unemployment. You mentioned the pandemic. It is not that long ago, of course, that the unemployment rate began with a five. Now we're at three and a half percent. And we've done that by worrying more about inflation than, than employment, haven't we? Well, uh, it's certainly true sort of over the longer term in the, you know, the last 30 years or so that we have worried, I'd argue, almost exclusively about inflation and certainly not enough about um, a full employment objective. But but actually, getting to 3.5%, uh, I think, is a great illustration of the argument that I've been making for why we need to put more weight on the uh, full employment mm-hmm. um, objective. Because I think we've got to 3.5% 
because with the onset of COVID, we we stopped worrying so much about inflation and we were suddenly really worried about what the rate of unemployment might get to. You remember the sort of forecast that the rate of unemployment might get as high as 15%. Oh, so suddenly yes. government was sort of galvanised to do something about this. And, you know, the government provided a lot of fiscal stimulus, Reserve Bank eased monetary policy. And, and yeah, the effect of that stimulus was really to show that we could get a lower rate of unemployment without the sky falling in. So I think that this latest episode is, is a really brilliant illustration of the benefits of you know, re-weighting our macro policy objectives towards full employment and putting a bit less weight on inflation objective. Well, of course, since then, the cycle has changed and the RBA is has much tighter monetary policy. And this goes, I think, to the question of how the RBA uses interest rate changes. Does its focus on inflation, and especially at the moment, mean that it's so concerned about a potential wage price spiral that it's prepared to have higher interest rates and slightly higher unemployment? Yeah, I guess historically the RBA, well, the last 30 years, the RBA has been you know, motivated pretty much exclusively by an in inflation target. And I guess I feel that that has sort of ignored the benefits of a lower rate of unemployment for national output and um, for equity. Sorry, this goes to the NIRU that you, that you were mentioning earlier, this idea that there's this number and if we get unemployment below that, it's too inflationary. And so now it, it would mean that the interest rate rises we've already had are aimed in part at taking the heat out of the jobs market. And unfortunately, that means pushing unemployment higher. Yeah, that's right. And I guess their view is that the Nairu is sort of in the four and a quarter, four and a half range, then they may see shifting the rate of unemployment sort of back to that level, not just as an acceptable cost of reducing inflation, but also, you know, returning it to what they see as the right kind of long-term rate for the economy. Mm. So um, immigration is rising. And of course, in, in the pandemic, it completely stopped. Immigration's fundamentally about it, addressing skill shortages and, and making the economy bigger. But what does it do to employment? Well, the best evidence we have is that immigration has pretty much, if we're talking about sort of the aggregate economy, has pretty much an equal effect on the demand side as on the supply side. So immigrants who come to Australia, sort of some proportion will uh, want to enter the workforce, so they add to labour supply. But of course, immigrants are also consumers, so they're adding to uh, labour demand. And yeah, the best studies we have suggest that in, in aggregate, the impacts of immigration on the supply and demand sides wash out and that we wouldn't expect there to be a big effect sort of over the sort of you know, medium term on unemployment. Of course, if you have you know, a sudden surge back in, in immigration, then the short-term effects on labour supply might be bigger than labour demand. So there could be some sort of short-term effect. But the evidence suggests that the effects are pretty much um, equal. In fact, if you look at the labour force numbers for the last couple of months, it's quite interesting that the, the increase in employment is very close to the increase in labour force participation. And I think you know, a potential story there is that with the return of immigration, we're actually relaxing constraints that we had on um, labour supply and allowing employment to increase to reduce some of the very high, you know, historically high levels of vacancies that we've had. All right. I know you would like us to make employment a priority. What would you like to see? What would that mean? 
So, yeah, what I'd like to see is a, a full employment target expressed as a level or perhaps broader concept, labour underutilisation, which encompasses both unemployment and underemployment, in addition to inflation targets. So I'm not saying get rid of the, the inflation target. What I'm saying is let's rebalance a bit. Let's put a bit more weight on full employment as an objective than we have done um, in the past three decades. I think what a full employment target does is it really forces us to think seriously about you know, how low is a sustainable rate of unemployment and also creates accountability for policy, you know, having that um, target in the way that's clearly happened with the inflation target that the RBA has. So, Jeff, would the employment target be a target for Treasury, uh, for the whole of government or for the RBA or what? Yeah, well, obviously, Treasury and the RBA are the two macro sort of policy makers. And so you've got to set up the arrangements with Treasury and the RBA to reflect sort of what the macro policy objectives should be. So, yeah, for example, with the RBA, I think that would involve um, some rewriting of um, their objectives to change the weight that's put on inflation and full employment compared to at present. I also think it's the case that you know, we, we shouldn't sort of be putting all the onus on the RBA uh, there needs to be a bigger role for Treasury in sort of a medium-term you know, management through fiscal policy to keep employment growth at a level that sort of means we can achieve full employment target. What should the number be? From what we what you were saying to me earlier, it can't be zero. Yep. But what what ought the number to be? Well. I think the target, it, it should balance the sort of three things that I've been talking about. It should balance the fact that lower unemployment has benefits for national output, has equity benefits. The potential cost of trying to push the rate of unemployment too low is, is we, do we get accelerating and excessive wage inflation? So I think that's the philosophy we have to have. I think we also have to have the philosophy that we're sort of setting a target that reflects the longer term drivers of what's attainable so that we're not continuously changing the target. If I look at the, the situation in the labour market at the moment, I'd probably be setting it sort of close to or, or a, a range around 3.5%. We know that getting to 3.5% provided the benefits for national output and equity and that we haven't really seen accelerating uh, wage inflation. Not only that, we actually have reasons as well for thinking that you know a target around this level is is the right target. First of all, it seems that you know, workers' wage bargaining power has, has declined over time, which means that the sensitivity of wage growth to unemployment isn't what it used to be. So mm. we need to take that into account. The second sort of reason I think we can have a lower target is... We express the target um, for full employment in terms of unemployment, but nowadays we have these, what are really two sort of almost equally important components of what's referred to as underutilisation, unemployment and underemployment. Mm. Underemployment these days, you know, roughly sort of speaking, makes up about 45% of the labour that's not being uh, utilised. Now, the other important thing about that is that underemployment's actually been an increasing share of underutilisation over time. If you believe that the right way to sort of formulate the target is in terms of 
underutilization, that is both unemployment and underemployment, which I do because you know, that's what really determines you know, national output, the total extent to which we're underusing labor. That's what determines the equity effects. That's what's probably going to drive wage inflation. If you think we should you know, really be thinking in terms of underutilization and underemployment's an increasing share of underutilization and unemployment's a decreasing share, then what it means is we should have been shifting our unemployment target down over time. I've estimated that taking account of the declining share of unemployment in underutilization, we probably should have a target today that's about one percentage point lower than we had 20 years ago. So, so I think we can look at what's happening in the economy today, but we can also sort of look at the underpinnings to that and come to a judgment that where we are at the moment probably seems a pretty decent place to be aiming at. So Treasury is preparing a white paper. Obviously, you would like an employment target. You'd like policy development to foster that. And this focus, as you've just been discussing, on underemployment. Is that, is that a fair summary, Jeff? The only thing I'd add to that is that even with the low rate of unemployment we have at the moment, there are some groups that are missing out on employment to a level that, that really we consider unacceptable. So First Nations people, people with disability, young people I mentioned, people living in disadvantaged regions and other groups as well. And so, yeah, beyond having an aggregate target, the fourth thing I'd say is that really important to have mm. goals and policies, of course, to improve outcomes for those specific groups. Jeff, it's been very wide-ranging, very interesting, and I think it clears up quite a lot of things. Thank you very much for joining me today. Thanks very much, Richard. Professor Jeff Borland from the University of Melbourne. And that's it for now. Next time on The Money, why the global economy is like the world's most famous painting. And you'll hear how the government could take the future much more into account if it really wanted to. Sophie Howe, who's just finished as the Future Generations Commissioner for Wales, will be our guest. The Money comes to you from Gadigal Land. It's produced by Kate MacDonald. I'm Richard Aidey. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.